0: Today, we're gonna talk to a doctor, but not your typical doctor.
1: Basically, I'm a buildings doctor, so that's somebody who looks at buildings, looks at how they're working, looks at whether they're working well, you know, are they healthy building?
0: So like, looking at all the ways that buildings can keep us healthy and safe, or how they can make us vulnerable and sick.
1: My name is Ian Hamilton, and I'm a professor of energy, environment, and health at University College London.
0: When you think of health, you might not think of buildings, but they go hand in hand. Buildings protect us from the elements. They keep us healthy and safe in the middle of storms and hot summers and cold winters. They can also filter out air pollution. But buildings also contribute to another danger to our health. That's climate change.
1: So buildings each year are responsible for around um, 26 percent of carbon emissions. And when you add on construction-related emissions, so that's the materials, you know, that we build buildings with the the steel, the concrete, the glass, that's another 10%.
0: That means that buildings account for about one-third of global emissions, when you consider both the embodied emissions and the construction materials and the energy used to run the buildings. And as a buildings doctor, Ian has his work cut out for him.
1: Every year, um, we're adding uh, the floor area of Japan to the world, okay? so. We have between now and 2060 an estimate that a city the size of Paris is being added every week.
0: That means that we need to do two things at once. We need to retrofit tons and tons of existing buildings while also changing the way that we build new ones. In this episode, we're zooming in on residential buildings like homes and apartments. How do we decarbonize them? This is The Big Switch, a show about how to rebuild the energy systems that are all around us. I'm Dr. Melissa Lott, and I'm the Director of Research at Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy. In our last episode, we laid out the four big steps to decarbonizing buildings in general. So first, we have to make them energy efficient. And then second, we have to replace all those old oil and gas appliances with electric ones. Third, we have to make sure that all the electricity that we're sending into our home is coming from zero carbon resources like wind and solar and nuclear. And finally, the fourth step is that we have to organize people to support the rules that can make this all happen. In this episode, we're digging into those first two steps, energy efficiency and electrification. And we're going to look in particular at residential buildings. These are our homes. So how do we make the places where we live more energy efficient? And what things do we need to replace to get to net zero? Ian Hamilton, the buildings doctor, takes us on a virtual tour to explain.
1: So you and I are standing out on the lawn and we're looking at this lovely ranch home and we see that it's, you know, maybe it's made of brick, maybe it's, you know, wood framed. It's probably got a a gas connection for either it's hot water, maybe it's heating system, maybe it's cooking system.
0: So imagine we're standing outside looking at this single-family ranch home, the kind of home that you might see in any small town or city in the U.S., And we're about to go through it room by room to figure out how to decarbonize it.
1: One of the first things that we need to envision is the insulation levels of those walls need to be addressed. The roofs need to be addressed. So that means putting in attic insulation. For homes that can, it means adding insulation into the existing wall structure.
0: This is sort of a given. We know that we need to insulate our homes to make them more efficient.
1: And for decarbonization, you know, Adding insulation is going to help reduce demand, so then that means that the next thing you do, which is about adding in a heating system or cooling system, is going to be smaller and it's going to be able to work more efficiently because that building can better hold its heat or hold its cooling.
0: But insulation isn't just about saving energy and reducing emissions. Sure, it's one giant piece of decarbonizing homes that we absolutely need to get out of the way. But do you remember back in episode one of this show when we covered the big freeze that knocked out Texas's power grid in February of 2020?
1: Pipes are freezing and breaking across central and north Texas right now, faster than plumbers can get out to fix them. Every plumber in town is backed up. The phones are ringing off the hook.
0: And the water's just flooding, and it's like it's like the Titanic in here. What
1: was supposed to be rolling blackouts to protect electrical grids has turned for some into days without heat.
0: It got down to about 51 degrees in our house by six o'clock, and we have a two-month-old baby. We were snuggled up, but it was just a little bit too much. We need insulation so that we can stay safe and healthy in our homes when the things that we depend on, for example, the power grid, break. Remember, our homes protect us from the elements. Energy efficiency doesn't just mean less carbon pollution. It also means better protection during heat waves and winter storms, especially in an increasingly unpredictable climate. And how do we have more efficient homes? Insulation.
1: That's going to make a big difference then for the next thing we need to address, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, at this moment in time, if we wanted to get to decarbonization and we said, okay, let's let's go towards electrification— so we're going to think about heat pumps as being a good solution for the heating and cooling needs of that home.
0: We'll keep coming back to energy efficiency throughout this episode, but now we're moving on to the second big player in building decarbonization. I'm talking electrification, which means moving from fossil fuel-powered appliances to electricity-powered ones, like heat pumps.
1: Now, a heat pump is—everybody we. Everybody already has one. It's a refrigerator.
0: You heard that right. You already have a heat pump and it's called your fridge. It works by sucking the heat out of the fridge using a substance called a refrigerant, and that refrigerant then dumps heat into the space around the fridge. Like, have you ever put your hand behind a fridge, back where the coils are? It's hot, right? That's the refrigerant moving through the coils, releasing heat that is picked up from inside the fridge. And an air conditioner works roughly the same. It absorbs heat from inside a home and then it dumps it outside. But the beautiful thing about heat pumps is that they can both heat and cool. And heating is where they shine.
1: The heating system in most homes here in North America, say, is responsible for around a quarter to to a half Mm -hmm. of your energy use in a home. And most of that's being done through... You know, it could be a boiler that you have, and it's feeding hot water through radiators, or it could be an air furnace, which is then heating the air and circulating that around. Or in some cases, older buildings as well, but also built with electric resistance heaters, so, you know, baseboard heaters.
0: All of these conventional heating systems, they generate new heat. Gas heaters ignite a flame, converting chemical energy into thermal energy. Electric heaters warm up heating elements, converting electricity into thermal energy. Wherever you do a conversion like this, you're going to lose a lot of energy. Heat pumps, on the other hand, they just pump heat. They move it around from inside to out or outside to in. And just like your fridge, they do this using a substance called a refrigerant, which both absorbs and releases heat, which is much, much more efficient than generating new heat. If you want one of these heat pumps, you can get them pretty much anywhere, at a home improvement store or from your heating and cooling contractor, and you can approach it in one of two ways. Either you can get a central unit that will send air throughout your house through those big air ducts that you might have seen up in your attic, or if you want to, you can use a ductless mini-split system. What this means is that you put a machine in each one of your rooms so that you can control the temperature one room at a time. So we've been on our lawn, we've been looking at the house, we've now made it as efficient as possible, and we've figured out our heating and cooling. So now we step into the house, and I'm thinking about coming home and washing my hands, and I want to do it with warm water. How do we heat water today, and how do we need to do it differently in the future?
1: So today's hot water is mostly heated by electric resistance heaters, so these are elements that sit inside a big hot water tank. And... We could also heat that with gas, so, you know, literally lighting a small fire under a tank and boiling it. Um, But what we'd really like to be able to do is make use of the free energy that's already in the home with the temperature of the air. And so heat pump hot water tanks are able to do that.
0: And they're back. This is another place where heat pumps can shine, heating water. Before, we were talking about pumping heat into or out of a space— so into or out of air. But now we're talking about pumping heat into water. Again, this is very different from a gas boiler or an electric hot water heater or even a tankless water heater. All of those generate new heat, but heat pumps actually absorb heat from the surrounding air, say in your basement, and then they concentrate it into your hot water tank. At Home Depot or Lowe's, these are called hybrid, or hybrid electric water heaters. And just to give you a sense of how awesome these things are, if you put one unit of electricity into them, you get two or three units of heat out of them because you're using all this free energy that's all around you right now. Or as Ian puts it,
1: Instead of a gas system where you're buying a dollar of gas and you're getting 87 cents of hot water out, a heat pump will be buying a dollar of electricity and getting $3 of heating hot water out.
0: So when we look at how we heat water today, the bottom line is that heat pump water heaters are just way more efficient. And that translates into real savings. According to EnergyStar.gov, switching to a heat pump water heater could save you hundreds of dollars per year. Mm. So I've come home, we've walked in through the front door, you know, we've washed our hands, left our shoes, and now we're going to make dinner. So how... Do we cook today? What kind of energy do we use? And in a net zero, in a decarbonized future, how different does cooking look?
1: So, right now, we use electricity for conductive cooking on the stovetop. So, that is heating a surface up, and the pot gets hot and boils the water. And we're going to move from that, which is about 75% efficient, to induction cooking, which is effectively the whole pot getting warm and transferring all of that energy to boil the water, which is about 86% efficient.
0: Induction stoves or induction ranges are another newer technology that you might start hearing about. So with a conventional electric coil or electric cooktop, we also call them glass cooktops, what you're doing is heating up this element, which then heats up a pan, which then heats up your water. That's a lot of steps, but an induction stove takes out a step. Basically, it sends an electromagnetic current into the pan, so the pan becomes the heating element. And so it gets warm and then transfers that heat directly to your food.
1: So it's much more efficient. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, by comparison to gas, it, which is only 40% efficient, it's not releasing any air pollution. So when gas is burnt, it obviously creates a bunch of particles that are related to the gas. And one of the big sources are uh, basically nitrous oxide and carbon monoxide and lots of things that we don't really want in the home. Mm -hmm. And so if we can avoid putting gas into the home to be burnt inefficiently and causing air pollution is a good thing. And if we can take clean cooking, that clean electric cooking, Mm -hmm. and make it as efficient as possible through inductive cooking, that's gonna be a big win. Mm -hmm. And then with our ovens, being able to use what's called convective, so this is heating up an element at the back and blowing hot air across our food compared Mm -hmm. to having an element sit there at the bottom And, you know, everybody knows that that oven that's too hot on one side or too hot on the Mm -hmm. other, this is the problem you get. So convective cooking is a lot more even with its heat. Mm -hmm. And that means we need to use less of it and we can Mm -hmm. run it for less time.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it burns the bottom of my cupcakes. It's very frustrating. So we've gone through space heating and cooling and we've covered water heating and now cooking. But there are a lot of other technologies that can help us save energy, like smart thermostats, which allow us to auto-adjust our temperatures to help us save money and energy, and also smart appliances, which allow us to shift when and how we use energy. But when you talk about decarbonizing homes, there's one technology that always comes to mind, rooftop solar, or in nerd speak, photovoltaics.
1: So photovoltaics, being able to generate electricity on your roof and then be able to use that in your home or export that which you don't use back into the electricity grid.
0: This allows the person that's living in a home to go from just consuming electricity to actually producing it, a power-producing consumer. We also call them prosumers.
1: You're going to be actively generating and using electricity that you generate on your own home, you're going to be sending that back into the grid so that the neighborhood has more availability of renewable energy directly within that grid.
0: And if you pair solar panels with energy storage, like a home battery or an electric vehicle battery, you can use low-carbon power in the case of an emergency.
1: And you're also going to be able to potentially store that renewable and low-carbon energy in your home. And for many who might experience uh, you know, power outages or... If uh, during storms or the like, this is an opportunity to ensure that your home maintains a certain amount of fuel on-site. You know, that's one of the big advantages to being able to generate on-site, is to use on-site, store on-site. There's also another thing, which is during the nighttime, when the sun is not shining, again, if you want to be completely low-carbon, this is another way in which you can ensure that you're meeting those needs over the course of the night.
0: All right. So what's the catch Heat pumps and insulation, induction stoves, solar panels, batteries, they all sound amazing. So why don't we all have them in our homes right now? Well, no shocker, a lot of it comes down to cost. Specifically the upfront cost, I'm talking sticker price. While these things can save us in the long run, you have to pay for them up front to get them into your home in the first place. Companies and governments, nonprofits, while well, they're all working to lower the costs of these technologies. And just last week, the Biden administration announced that it's using something called the Defense Production Act to boost manufacturing of heat pumps and solar panels. But it's going to take a lot more work to get these technologies into our homes. The other catch is that every location, every house, well, it's different. For example, homes in tropical climates will need different solutions than homes in temperate climates.
1: So it's going to look very different depending on the location. So when we're thinking about uh, hot and humid countries, you know, it's really important for us to be able to cool those buildings uh, effectively through, say, dehumidification. Mm -hmm. That's going to really help to make sure that they're comfortable and we can keep them cool. But importantly in those locations, it's making sure that sun doesn't get into those spaces to begin with. So ventilation is going to be really important, but also solar shading. When you see those net zero buildings that exist in tropical climates, they have effectively a large umbrella over the whole building, and that's to keep the solar radiation off from heating up the space underneath it, and then making them as open as possible until you start using air conditioning, and then that means sealing them up so that they are able to keep that cooled air inside. And again, opening them back up again when it's appropriate to do so. So nighttime cooling is really important for a lot of those locations. But maybe something to add to that, Melissa, is that in many parts of the world, multi-unit buildings, you know, high-rise buildings, is the fastest-growing form of building that we see. And the way that they're being constructed, you know, a lot of times with a lot of concrete, a lot of uh, concrete block, making sure that those buildings are low carbon in the future is going to be a real struggle. They need to be designed now so that they are more efficient in the future when people maybe are affording to install air conditioning systems. And right now what we're doing is is building these giant structures that could be very hot.
0: So taking a step back... When we talk about getting to net-zero emissions in residential buildings, just how close are we? Are we miles and miles away, or is it just around the corner?
1: Net-zero for new buildings can be around the corner. So by 2030, we need to see that all new buildings being built are net-zero carbon. So that means that the grid, as it decarbonizes, is going to ensure that a very efficient building operating decarbonized... And we do that through building codes. We do that through making sure that they're designed efficiently. And we do that with all the equipment that's being used inside them, meeting really high performance standards. For existing buildings, the challenge is bigger. We are not around the corner for decarbonizing our existing buildings in the same way. So this is a real challenge. 80% of the buildings that are going to be here in 2030 or 2050 have already been built. You know, so the amount of floor space we're adding, although an enormous number, our existing buildings are going to be 80% of already was here. How we decarbonize those is, and how quickly we decarbonize those, is the real challenge we have to face. So in the UK, for example, to meet our net zero carbon targets by 2050, we have to be decarbonizing a building a minute. And that of the 23 million buildings that are in the UK, residential buildings in the UK. We need to be investing in their walls, their windows, their roofs, their heating systems, all this stuff. And we need to have the skilled workers who can come in and do that work. We need to be able to finance that work so that it is done effectively and cost efficiently. We need to make sure that people who don't have normal access to that level of financing can do so. And so it's really important for us to be really equitable in how the decarbonization agenda addresses buildings. Because this is where we live. This is where we work. And in most cases, it's one of the single largest investments we've ever made.
0: So let's recap. To decarbonize residential buildings, we have to make all of our new buildings much more efficient and ready for a net-zero world. But the biggest challenge? That's going to be retrofitting existing homes, the buildings that we already have. In those homes, we have to address insulation first, because a well-insulated home is a more efficient and healthy home. Second, we need to replace fossil fuel appliances and inefficient electric appliances with highly efficient electric ones, like heat pumps for space heating and cooling, or for water heating. We also want induction stoves and, where possible, rooftop solar panels and batteries, which can send power to our wider communities or serve as backup during an outage. But we have to tailor our approach to every building in every location, and we need to make sure that all these technologies are affordable and accessible to the people who want them. <laughs> And that's a question we're gonna dive into in the next episode of The Big Switch. How do we make sure that everyone benefits from the technologies that will move our buildings to net zero, especially those who are most affected by climate change? The Big Switch is produced by Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy in partnership with PostScript Media. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf and Alexandria Herr. Story editing was by Anne Bailey. Mixing and scoring by Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfrank. And the theme song was by Sean Marquand. A special thanks to our Columbia team, Kirsten Smith, Q Lee, Liz Smith, and Natalie Volk. Our managing producer is Cecily Meza-Martinez, and our executive editor is Stephen Lacey. I'm Dr. Melissa Lott, and this is The Big Switch.